Welcome to Entrepreneurial Insights. I'm very excited about our, our interview today with David Wedeman. But before we get started, I just want to remind you that if you enjoy this podcast, go ahead and subscribe and sign up so that you don't ever miss one of these wonderful podcasts. But welcome, David. We're glad to have you glad today. To and who am I sitting with? Jay Healy, the co-host on the podcast. Thank you, Pearson. <laughs> very good. Sorry. Sometimes I just tend to t- kind of take over. So sorry about that. But David, like David Wedeman retired, very important part of his title, chairman, former chairman of Retrans, a logistics company here in Memphis. We're so excited to have you. you here today. Why don't you tell us before we get started a little bit about the company you had? Right. Well, first of all, I always try to tell people instead of retired, which sounds old, I'm unemployed. Um, <laughs> Much better description. So, yeah. so everybody today, we, we started a logistics company even back in the day when I first got in this business. It was transportation. You probably would know it now as a supply chain management. After COVID and everything that went on, and it's on the front page of the newspapers, everybody's talking about supply chain. So we started a supply chain uh, business uh, back in 2002. I'm fortunate and blessed that this is my second company to start. I had another company called... Mark 7 Transportation that we sold in 1989, started Retrans in 2002. Uh, Retrans, everybody always asks me where I got the name from. Well, the, the company is named after my daughter. Uh, my daughter's Maria, but I always call her Re. I'm the only person in the world that calls her Re, and thus Retrans, which I always thought was kind of cool. You could Re, colon, trans, and all that other stuff that came with it. So it, it kind of worked out well for for somebody that doesn't know much about marketing. But uh, <laughs> so we started in 2002, and we were a non asset based uh, logistics company, which means we didn't own any of the trucks, trains, planes that we put the freight on. Uh, we were an intermediary, much like people would think about if you went to your, your, your financial advisor, they're a broker of some sort that they sell, buy, and sell things for you. Well, we did that for businesses. Uh, for instance, at one point in time, we managed all of Lint Ghirardelli chocolates freight, you know, wow. 100% of it. So back in the day when I had a job, we, I was always af, after everybody eat more chocolate, which I did the best I could at that. Um, so anyway, so we, we did that. We grew it uh, over the, a period of time to where it had 55 offices around the country. Uh, we were doing about $600 million in revenue and... Uh, having a lot of fun. It was, we had a great group of people. Many of them were from the Mark 7 family, uh, and it, it's, it's just great. But we headquartered here in Memphis, love being Memphis. I am a Memphian by uh, not forever. I've never lived anyplace else in my entire life besides Memphis or Shelby County, and uh, grew up out in Whitehaven, and uh, I've always come home, traveled all over God's green earth, have over have several millions of miles on different airlines, and uh, but always come home. And you uh, you grew up in Memphis. Grew up. Went to University of Memphis. Went to University education. of Memphis. Couldn't even figure out how to get out of co- out of town for college. Uh, <laughs> yeah, went to graduate of uh, University of Memphis. I have uh, uh, crazily an accounting degree. Uh, I tell people all the time though that that uh, frontal lobotomy and drug treatment has helped significantly to get me out of that. Uh, but no, I would not trade my accounting degree. And particularly if you're starting companies, uh, having that accounting degrees, because as I always tell people, 
no matter what job you're in, usually eventually you're going to be at the mercy of the bean counters. And so if you're one of them, it kind of helps you through that process. What was your first job out of college? First job out of college, I went to work for Arthur Anderson, uh, which was the, at the time the world's largest uh, public accounting firm. And sure. we had, had the big eight in those days. They were right. one of the big eight. Uh, I tell people now I still have my shredder. And, and the reason why <laughs> I say that is Arthur Anderson's not around anymore. They went down with Enron. Uh, it's kind of a crazy story, but it was a great, I, I was there for two years. Uh, it was a great learning experience. Um, I'll tell people a lot of the times I consider that to be about a six years pushed into two. They worked us to death also, but, uh, but it really, it really did, uh, pay off. Well, so you worked for them and then what made you decide to start a business? Well, First of all, I didn't ever decide to start a business. Everybody talks about being an entrepreneur and, uh, you know, now they have entrepreneur classes and I'm still not sure I know how to spell entrepreneur. Uh, but, but, but I'm not, I, I never set out to start a business. You know, it's not like, oh gosh, I'm a kid in high school, a kid in college. I want to start a business. No, uh, what happened was I left Arthur Anderson after the two years and went to work for one of my clients who's in the transportation business. Uh, that's what a lot of public accounting people do, if you're, particularly from the audit side. And so I went to work for a client that had to be in the transportation business, and there we go. So stayed there until 1988-89. So I graduated college in 80, put it in context, stayed there two years, went to work for this company, stayed there until about 88-89, and then all of a sudden, our company got sold, and they wanted me to move to beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Ooh, and, uh, tempting. At that time, Ree was about two or three, getting close to being three. And uh, there was just no way to make that work. You, the, the, you know, this was before cell phones. Yes, I'm that old. <laughs> uh, before cell phones, before all that. And, you know, you would go from a 15-minute, 10-minute commute to an hour and a half commute, smaller house, et cetera, et cetera. So I couldn't take that job. Well, after turning them down twice and quickly figuring out I was on my path to become director of paperclips uh, at that company, I had to do something. So fortunately, knew a fellow that was leaving that company who had the money to fund the company, and we started a company called Mark 7 Transportation. That would have been in 1989. So I tell people all the time, that I really became an entrepreneur out of desperation. Needed a job, mm-hmm. needed to stay in Memphis, wanted to stay in Memphis. And so we started Mark 7 and uh, off we went. And you talk about the fact that you've sold that company, then you sold Retran. That's got to be kind of hard. I mean, you grow up a baby and then you let right. it go. So how did you make that decision both those times? Well, different, different reasons. Uh, the first time was the gentleman who put more of the money in, you know, he's, it's the golden rule, uh, his, his gold, we get to play by his rules, mm-hmm. but we actually turned Mark seven into a publicly held company. So, so we were publicly held and we sold to another company. And when you're publicly held, if somebody shows up, and wants to buy you, yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. off you go. So uh, we, we did that and did that in, like I said, in, in 1989. And, uh, so that was, that was kind of that situation, but I, I was not, financially or wanting to retire at that time and so I had a two and a half year non-compete and the great thing about the two and a half year non-compete they did pay me but the second thing was my daughter Ray 
was about 13. And so I got to play daddy cab a lot. And it was a perfect time. And uh, we got to spend a lot of good quality time together. And often with it. The nine compete expires 2002. We start uh, retrans in, in the middle of 2002. And off we go again. So now we're getting to uh, where it's 10 years. You know, I'll see. I'll get my dates right. So about 15, 16, years 15, 16, starting in 2002. We were a great company, mature, great group of people. But I was getting to the point to where I was thinking to myself, well, how long do I want to continue to do this? And how do you do things? And so what are you going to do? Uh, I'm 65 now. So uh, if you roll it back, you know, when we sold it in uh, uh, about five years ago, you start thinking to yourself, okay, how long do I want to continue to do this? So we started to to do that. And this time we were not, we were privately held. We engaged a finance company, an intermediary from Stiefel, and they helped us run a process to see who wanted to buy us, and we ended up selling it to a company headquartered in Switzerland. And uh, so it was, it, was, it was a great run. I spent my last four years after selling it getting to travel around, around the world instead of just domestically uh, to places like Dubai and Singapore and things like that, which was a lot of fun, uh, tiresome. Uh, you know, I think that's maybe what killed me in the end. Is the airplanes? You know, I flew every week, went someplace every week, and that gets old. Yeah. That gets old. So, so when you built Retrans, was that a unique uh, strategy and unique uh, logistics? It was unique in a couple of different ways. Uh, you know, one of the ways there again is it's this non-asset-based theory. Yeah. Uh, and, there's, and there's several things, several people out there like that now. But the non-asset-based scenario where what we used to tell people is because I don't own the asset, the truck or the train or the plane, I'm going to sit on the same side of the table as you, Mr. Shipper, and try to find the best solution. No offense to my asset-based brothers and sisters out there, but they're coming in, and if their truck's green, they're selling you a green truck. I didn't care what color the truck was or if it went on a train. I didn't, then we tried to develop the best solutions. We also tried to develop the best systems. There's a lot of system stuff now in supply chain, whether it's analytics or things like that. The other thing that made us unique is that our, commission, our sales force, which we, at the end we had about 180 salespeople around the country, they were 100% commission-based. They worked for us, but they were 100% commission-based, and that kept a lot of aggressiveness in the company, a lot of want to. So I woke up kind of every day going, just answering to somebody about what to do. And what we told our, our folks internally is that that commission salesperson is your customer. Without them, we don't have any freight. And without them, you don't have a paycheck. Uh, so that's the kind of thing we did. So that kind of made us unique in that regard, that we very sales-oriented, commission, crazy commission guys, and uh, they were a lot of fun. So you mentioned that you had good people. Right. Yeah. And over 250 employees in total, right? Right. Did you have a strategy for hiring the right people at the right time? Is there anything you could share with other Yeah, well, well, that developed over years. And, uh, uh, in fact, 
we were just talking about the new generation working remotely and things like that. I, I guess that makes me a dinosaur because, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not sure how to always respond in that because I'm a very learn about people and see people. So the first thing you do is, is, is you try to figure out to me when you're hiring is what are you hiring for? And too many human resources departments, in my opinion, try to hire the way a person looks, acts, uh, they, you know, they all meet. I mean, when I told you I worked at Arthur Anderson, you know, we all wore suits, we all wore ties, they all have to be, I, I could, the world headquarters was in Chicago. I could pick all the Arthur Anderson guys out of the O'Hare airport. <laughs> look the same. Right, right. And uh, so we, we, what we tried to do is to figure out what we were hiring for. And because the commission guys, there's different people that do that. It makes a difference how they look. So uh, one time I, I, I told people, I says, you know, I feel like I'm just running one bit kennel here. I said, we've got all the dogs and the cats. And I'm the biggest dog of the bunch. So, but that's what we do. So we didn't try to hire, we try to hire people for the position, understanding what their wants and desires are, making sure it worked two ways to give them both things. You learn things like over the years. So our sales force was typically experienced people because you can't survive on a commission job hardly when you're fresh out of school. A lot of our support positions, of course our computer stuff, uh, were younger people. And one of the things that we learned hiring, we started hiring a lot of folks right out of school, right out of college. Great. Go get our people. Go get our young people. Uh, we learned a lot from them. But there was one problem with that. This was their first job out of school. Well, in two to three years, they think, and they're probably right, that they need to move to a different place. And they don't recognize whether it's a good job or a bad job because they ain't had the bad job yet. Right. <laughs> well, we've all had the bad job, right? right? So I decided, I, we decided that we want the hire be the second job where they can mm -hmm. compare it to somebody else's job and do that. Because that's, but we were lucky. We were, all, a lot of us had all worked together. We were able to put together a certain environment that fit us. But there was no, the biggest thing was is to accept all, but understanding that they're there for a purpose. That's very good. So what would you say the culture of the company was like? If you were, I can imagine knowing you that it was probably pretty fun. We had fun. Uh, we had fun. We had great Christmas parties. Uh, a lot of eating I bet of that. A lot of eating and drinking going on there. Uh, <laughs> but we did things, that, like I said, in that unusual way. Uh, but yes, we laughed a lot. And people sometimes miss the point. They think if you're laughing, you're not working. Well, maybe for that few seconds that you're not, you know. So think about it this way. I was talking to my daughter, who's, my daughter's a, a very accomplished mom and a very accomplished school counselor. She says, she was telling me, she says something about, it. you know, Dad, six-year-olds on average laugh or smile 300 times a day. Adults laugh or smile 100 times a day. Well, wouldn't we all rather be a six-year-old? Heck yeah. I mean, if you're doing your job and laugh and smile and enjoy what you're doing, because, goodness, we spend more time there than we spend anywhere else. Yeah. Well, we used to. Now, now I don't know where they spend their time. But in my world, <laughs> still there. And I still believe. I mean, I, I know we were talking about earlier about jobs being remote. 
I came across some young people one time, and they were talking about that they were working remote and how great it was, and I asked them one question. And I don't think anybody has the answer yet. What are you going to do five years from now when you want to get promoted? <laughs> and you haven't met anybody. I don't know. Somebody will figure it out. You know, it was all about, and how do you learn? How do you get trained? And that's the deal. I told people all the time, I learned more in the break room than I did anyplace else. Yeah, that is going to be a big, big switch in this with these kids because they don't have that. They don't. They don't have those mentors. How do you get to the mentor? You took the yeah, words out. Yeah. How do you find your mentor? And even how do you find somebody that is not doing it right? Because I've always how said. How you learn from other people one direction or the other. Well, sure. I've always said you learn more right. from your failure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we would go make a big presentation to a big company, and uh, if we got the business, sometimes I was scared to ask why. Maybe we underpriced. Maybe maybe nobody else was bidding. I don't know. But I always wanted to know why we lost to do a good autopsy because yeah. you're going to learn from your mistakes. And that's the kind of thing that I worry for young people. How do you get that experience? Well, that kind of brings me to the next topic because you are a mentor to so many people. And so why do you think that that's important? And just tell me a little bit about what you're doing with that. Well, I think it's important for for lots and lots of reasons. I mean, I, I'll miss a lot of them. And I, I'm not comfortable with the word mentor always because I'm, I'm just who I am and I'm out doing things. And, but I've been so blessed and so lucky to have the ability to, A, be retired when I'm still healthy, and B, even doing it before. That's one of the great things about the Society of Entrepreneurs is that we make sure that we bring people into the society that are giving back right. to, to, to the organization. And that was why it was so cool to be hanging out with these guys, because they're giving back too. But by giving back, you just learn lots of things. You learn about people. You're kept humble, hopefully. You learn how to do things. And it's, 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 it's easy for me, because if you might not figure it out just in this short cast, I don't mind talking all the time. <laughs> but... It's up in my head. I mean, why not give it out? And I always tell people if I've met and talked to them, I says, just remember, my opinion may be worth what you just paid for it, and it's usually nothing. So, uh, but it's I get I get a lot of warmth back from it, a lot of things. You made a mention about managing and things along that line, and the, the, the you know people talk about you know, family companies, and that sometimes I think that's overused. But one time somebody asked me about managing a startup company. And what do you do? I said, think about it this way. Managing a startup company is like raising a child. I said, when they're little bitty, you can't let go of their hand. You're with them all the time. Well, that's being starting up. A, you've got to hold on to it every day. You've got to be answer every phone call. You've got to do whatever you've got to do. Then they get a little older and they go to school a little bit or you give them a little rope. You let them try not to let them go too far because you'll get them out in traffic. And then as they get further and further along, you go to, they go to college, they go away to school, and that's the company. Then all of a sudden, they're, 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 they're adults, and they're running everything without you, you feel like. And that's what you but hope. That's, that's what you hope for. Yeah, right. you, know, you look around and say, well, I guess I'm needed anymore. Uh, but that's why I say being a good entrepreneur is being like uh, a good parent. So you learn, you learn from being... A, a, a parent that's hands-on, or not even a good parent, just surviving parenthood maybe is, is the way you do that. 
That's a great perspective. It yeah. sure is. Well, you talk a lot about being a parent and how important your grandchildren and your family are to you. What else are you doing with your days these time, these well, days? Now that you're unemployed. Well, now that I'm unemployed, <laughs> well, first of all, they get they get first cut. I have a seven year old granddaughter and a set of twin boys. They're two and a half, and the, and they they're they're a lot of fun, lots of energy, and they love to keep. I'm called Pop Pop, and that's my new name. Uh, oh, I'm Pop Pop, and I'm just, it's a wonderful job. Uh, so they, they, I get to spend a lot of time with them. I'm trying to do some more charity work. Uh, you'll have to excuse me. I, first of all, I really thought this was just a podcast with no video, so you, sadly you get me. But I, I was dressed. I've been down at uh, – I was with several other men this morning down at uh, Catholic Charities, and we were feeding a, uh, hopefully a couple hundred uh, homeless people on this rainy morning and uh, feeding them breakfast. So we cooked breakfast and uh, and help serve it to them but that's that's fun that's that keeps you honest and do this i'm still on several boards i guess like every unemployed guy well i do a little consulting work you know you gotta you gotta have a consulting thing just so that it acts like you're you're doing something you can't you can't say what you're doing i'm laying around all day i mean you know, <laughs> i don't see you laying around very much so, there uh, that's for so, sure. I, so i do a little <laughs> consulting work also Oh, that's great. Very good. You also talked about the fact that you were born and raised in mm -hmm. Memphis, grew up in Whitehaven. Where did mm -hmm. you go to school? I actually uh, uh, was, went to Hillcrest in uh, my freshman year, and then I, I'm a graduate of Memphis Prep, which is now long gone. And you have to be involved in the 70s and everything going on there. Mm -hmm. That uh, schools got changed significantly. But yeah, so they then went, then went to University of Memphis, like I said earlier, our good old Memphis State in the day. Mm -hmm. But I know Memphis is very important to right. you. What what are you happy about? What's what do you think is good about Memphis right now? Well, first of all, it's it's Memphis has been this way for as long as I've been around, and and is that we're we're our own worst enemy. You know, we're not going to point out to you what's good. We're going to always point out to you what's bad, what's sad, all the negative things going on. You know, and yes, we have a crime issue. We have a crime issue in Memphis, uh, but that's not the only thing we have in Memphis. Uh, we have companies coming here all the time. We have great things. Employment is fabulous here in Memphis. It is a very easy place to live compared to, I know you have a daughter that's just leaving Philadelphia. Compare Memphis to Philadelphia, mm -hmm. Chicago. This is a very easy place to live where you can be 15 minutes from your family and you can uh, own a home and you can do things because the cost of living is much more efficient and you can make friends and and things and there's just so much good going on that we should be positive we've talked about it at the society a bunch companies being started all the time so think about this all these great folks that are society of entrepreneurs and i can't even say it much less spell it <laughs> but that if you go on the website over there and you see all these grand names yeah and these are people who've done extraordinarily well mm -hmm. most of them they can live anywhere in the world they want to live, and they stay home. They stay home. We're, we're here. And we just need to understand that we need to take care of education. Uh, I'm a lucky guy. I got my dad, like I said, repaired cotton gins. I come from a very blue-collar family. But I got to go to college, uh, uh, worked my way through, had a lucky got a scholarship to help and, and, and make a difference and education makes so much of the world. Mm -hmm. But I'm not one of those people that think you got to go to college. No. You, you, you go into the military to learn a trade. You, you go 
uh, become an air conditioning guy or, or, or a heat guy. Because, by the way, we're filming this on a, a Friday, and, and this, this next week it's going to be really cold. So I'd love to be a heating and air guy exactly. right now. Exactly. <laughs> but do something that gives you a specialty, that makes you different. I was talking to a young man the other day who's getting ready to go through the interviewing process. I said, well, what makes you different? Why should I hire you? You know, if I was looking at you, come up with something, come up. And Memphians are fun. We used to have a Memphis, at Memphis Catholic, uh, several years ago, we had a thing called Education That Works. A great program. And they worked their way. It was a private Catholic school. But they worked uh, one day a week to pay for their tuition. And I got, I got exposed to a lot of the young people there, and it was, it, it was fabulous. And what we were trying to show was, one, some of these kids had never been in an office building. Well, I'm that kid. I never was in an office building until I was in college. I did not know anything like that. And so we taught them a lot of things. University of Memphis has a program that's called uh, Fogelman Professional Development. Because I can remember in 19, this is how bad this was. I can remember in 1980, I was interviewing, went to, and I'd never gone to these fancy restaurants and ordered off a menu, ever, in my life. Right. So I'd gone all day, and, and we went to dinner, and there was a spoon at the top of the plate. <laughs> I knew it was a trick. I knew, I didn't know what to do with the spoon. I broke out in a sweat, that I'm not going to hire him because I don't know what to do with the spoon. <laughs> And, but that's the truth. So there's a program at the program University of Memphis? That's so cool. How to interview, how to dress. We look at your resume. What to do we, with the what spoon. To do, what to do with the <laughs> spoon. Yeah. And, and it, it is so great to see things like that. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's those little things. It's not, it doesn't have to be global that you're doing something to help somebody. It's the little things. It's having lunch with somebody to do things with. So... That's awesome. You know, that kind of all, I think I might know your answer anyway, but one of the questions we always ask in the podcast is, do you think that entrepreneurs are born or taught? Can you teach somebody to be an entrepreneur? I think, yes, you can. Now, a lot of people will say, no, you can't. I think, yes, you can. Now, the one thing that the entrepreneur that has to have is be a risk taker. You have to be willing to take a chance. Now, but that chance can be forced upon you. Like me, desperation. Yeah, Got to yeah. pay the bills. <laughs> but I think you learn the process. I mean, I was blessed to start two, one, and I never started a company before and had no clue what I was doing. The second one that I, my second one, I was better at it because I had learned. But yes, you learn. And so when you go through life and you have those good jobs and bad jobs, learn from both, and that, that's what you'll take away. So I think you, you do both except for one thing. You have to be able to take a risk. That you yes. co- that comes right. with, but that risk could be done with a gun held to your head. I don't know, but you have to take a risk eventually. I think that's very very good point. Great insights. Mm-hmm. Well, we appreciate the conversation. Well, thank it's you great for to having touch me. base with you. It's great. Good. Thanks. Good. And uh, I appreciate all that y'all are doing with these podcasts. Well, we appreciate all that you're doing, especially getting up on a cold, rainy morning feeding the homeless. So thank you very much. And also, don't forget that if you enjoyed this podcast, we have others. So make sure you sign up and subscribe wherever you get your other podcasts. Thank you. Bye.